1: So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Tech with the minds. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is What I learned at 20 is you
1: episode of Equity Made. It's a podcast that follows our journey of investing. Whether you're an absolute beginner or approaching Warren Buffett status, our aim is to help break down your barriers from beginning to dividend. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How are you going?
2: I'm very good, Bryce. Very excited for this episode as always, but um, I'm doubly excited for this uh, episode because we've got double the amount of experts this week. Normally, every Thursday, we have one. This week, we've got two.
1: We do have two, and it is a bit of a different format, uh, but that is because there's a lot going on in Equity Mates, and we want to let everyone know about some of the additional content that we're doing that is equally as valuable as our expert interviews.
2: Well, they are still expert interviews. Well, they are. <laughs> <laughs> so, for people who may not be aware, we're doing a... TV show, I guess you can call it, although it's not really on TV, but let's call it a TV show. Um, A TV show on a financial streaming service, Ausbiz, and we're doing four episodes a week, pumping out the content. Pumping. And we think there's some great content there that we really want to make people who just listen to the podcast aware of and give you some insight from some of the investors and experts that we're speaking to. In particular, a concept that you came up with, it's a good one. Uh, watchlist Wednesday. Yeah. Where we get uh, an expert investor on and we ask them for two or three stocks on their watchlist. And we've heard some cracking stocks that. I'd never heard of it before.
1: Yes, uh, we have two small cap managers today, Wren. One is uh, Nick Cregan from Fairlight uh, Asset Management, and the other is Tobias Bucks from Ozbill. And both are small cap specialists. Both have been on the show before, but have brought three new stocks each that they uh, have on their watch list and or in their fund. And you're right, we have never heard of them.
2: Yeah. We've heard of the managers, we just haven't heard of the stocks. Yes. Well we've heard of some of the stocks, but not all of them. And and like we love hearing experts break down individual stocks. It's just it's epic to listen to how they think about stocks, how they find these stocks. We know the equity mates community love hearing about individual stocks that they may not have heard of before or they're gonna think about in a different way or, you know, they get a different perspective on. So we have selected these two interviews for this episode, but there's heaps of other good ones. Andrew Brown came on recently and did um, two companies controlled by billionaire families you've never heard of before. Yeah, uh, We've had Roger Montgomery uh, from Montgomery Invest. We've had uh, Julia Lee, an old uh, podcast favorite. So it's just, it's another great way to, to learn more about investing. So for the rest of this episode, uh, enjoy these two clips. But if you want to see why I have a face for podcasting, <laughs> <laughs> uh, head over to osbiz.com.au or you can head over to the Equitymates YouTube channel um, and watch some of our old episodes and keep up to date with new ones. So first cap off the rank, do you have a preference, Bryce? Nick Cregan or Tobias Bucks?
1: Let's go with Tobias Bucks.
2: All right. So first up, uh, Tobias Bucks, Portfolio Manager at Ausbill Investment Management. Uh, here's his episode of watch this Wednesday. So Tobias we're, uh, we're in the middle of reporting season both uh, in Australia but also overseas. Um, we wanted to uh, pick your brain for two reasons. first of all because uh, you're an expert in global stocks um, and we're particularly interested in what's happening over in the US. Uh, but a lot's spoken about you know the big end of the market. Apple breaking $100 billion in revenue, Amazon breaking $100 billion, Microsoft breaking $40 billion. But that's all being spoken about. We want to hear what's going on in the small end of the market uh, with some of the small-cap stocks uh, that you've been watching. Uh, You've given us three before the show. Um, So we really, in this episode, just want to hear about these companies, for people who are unfamiliar, what they do, and then uh, anything interesting that's come out of the recent reporting season. Uh, So the first company you gave us was Trade Desk. Um, It trades on the NASDAQ with the ticker TTD. Uh, So to kick us off, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Trade Desk?
3: So the Trade Desk Desk is a leader in digital programmatic advertising. So effectively, anytime you see an advert anywhere on any digital device, it's been bid for. um, And people bid for that inventory because they want to access a particular user. And you see Facebook and you see Alphabet have a big control over the internet, and they control therefore a lot of the advertising. But in all the other areas of the internet and all digital content, whether it's whether you're watching video on demand or whether you're watching something on your phone or, or looking at any website or any sort of digital or radio or with audio, including obviously a lot of the podcasts people listen to, etc. You want to advertise on that and. To get there, you need someone to help you advertise, and you need to know things. Mm-hmm. First thing you need to know is who you're advertising to, and you want to know what the price is to pay for that advert, and then you want to secure that advert. And, the, and Trade desk helps people do those three things. So, for anyone wanting to advertise digitally that doesn't want to use Google and doesn't off Alphabet or Facebook, you kind of end up using the trade desk, and that's where you've seen Amazon and the Chinese big players go, and lots of players are now going. So, you actually um, spoke about Trade
1: Desk when we got you on the show um, at some point last year. Um, have you brought it up again today, expecting good things this coming Friday from a reporting season, or uh, are you scratching it off the watch list? What are you expecting to, to come out from
3: uh, their report? Well, it's our biggest position, so we're expecting a good number. Well,
1: I <laughs> <good that. Yeah>.
3: We sat through a lot of results. We've been shareholders for over two and a half years now and it's right. gone up a lot in that time. And each time we go through a result, we, we get less and less nervous given what we know about the quality of the management team and, and what's going on. Um, this Friday, I think what's important for investors is stocks where they're you can see that the investment case is very compelling. They will trade on expensive valuations and there's a lot of growth built into those. And so we first invested in trade desk, there was a lot of unrecognized growth. We could see the market, thought it was trading on 60 times earnings, it was actually trading nearer 40 times earnings. Um, and it did the market wasn't giving it credit for its growth profile. You fast forward to now and it's on over 200 times earnings. The market clearly understands that it's going to go places. It's gone from a, a $3.5 billion market cap stock to a f- almost $40 billion market cap stock. So there's a lot built in. Yeah. When does it stop being a small cap? Yeah, I was just going to say <laughs> yeah. that, yeah. So, it's a, a key point. So, it leaves the, the, the indices and goes into the mid-cap indices is probably the best watershed definition you can get. And that's up to the MSCI. So, it, in the US market, things stop being a small cap and become a mid-cap in sort of the high teens billions, and in Europe and the rest of the world, it's slightly lower, about 7 to 8 billion in Europe, you become a mid-cap. Yeah, right. Just out of interest, was
1: how did COVID affect Trade Desk? Did, did it uh, make you reassess anything? Was it good for, for Trade Desk? What was the impact?
3: It was good. Uh, yeah, we reassessed everything in the portfolio. We, we, we did exit a couple of great um, emerging global titans that we thought would be structurally under pressure over the next few years, given how COVID was going to play out do with you know, out-of-home advertising, mm. things about going into the city, mm. um, aeroplane mm. manufacture, things like that we're going to struggle. And we did add to positions we thought would benefit. And people consuming digital content as you guys very well aware of experts <laughs> yourself. We actually need yeah. Trade yeah. Desk. Yeah. You do. It's, yeah. got, it's gone through the roof. I mean, the thing about the Trade Desk is we felt it was turning the lights on for anyone who wanted to access the internet. Yeah. You, you could find out who you were wanted to sell an advert to and you'd get a very good price. Uh, and if you put the money through Alphabet and Facebook, it wasn't as clear to us that you, you might have seen or got such a good deal. Mm. Uh, and that's just accelerated. You've got Amazon, Disney, as I say, all the Chinese players. Um, audible everyone's now using the trade desk yeah. so yeah wow. give them well, a call they're in sydney <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> we should, yeah Yeah, look we could talk about uh digital advertising yeah. in the trade desk all day but unfortunately we don't have all day uh the next stock uh that you are having a look at is atcore am i saying that right
3: yeah 100 atkore and,
2: and that trades uh, in new york with the ticker atkr So I haven't heard about this company before. Can you uh, tell us what it does?
3: Yeah, so they basically make electrical and plastic conduit for cables. So if you ever go into a car park, it's probably the best place people to see it. It's called an electrical raceway. It's like an aluminum tray that's hanging off the ceiling. It's got loads of cables. Or if you you have a riser in a a big building, there'll be a riser Mm. with power and telecom cables. Uh, And demand for that's going up a lot. The, The reason why it's really interesting is it is also an emerging Titan just like the Trade Desk, you know, was emerging. And you might say now it's no longer really emerging. It, it is a titan now. Mm-hmm. Um, but core is also an emerging global titan with lots of unrecognized growth. Now, it's not in something sexy. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, uh, the programmatic. the opposite, okay, okay, yeah. It's in something really bog standard. And actually, it, 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 people we didn't think really understood the business. We, I've been to Chicago. Um, I've met, and met people in the States who work with them. I've, I know what they do. And when we saw the business, with a management team that was cutting costs, improving manufacturing, um, improving its distribution and better delivery time to, to, to customers. So obviously the key thing is if you've got a building site and tradesman on site, it's not so much how much the electric conduit costs. It's more how much does it disrupt your build and the other trades if it's not there on time. Mm -hmm. And so that's a key point. And the stock in November was trading on three times earnings. So let's just compare that to the Trade Desk that got up to almost 300 times earnings. So that's a very different multiple, but no less an area that, that investors can make money and you can find really good companies. Well, this is why I love chatting to you because you always bring these obscure companies
1: that it's just like, who would have
4: thought to be investing
1: in, in that? In a company like this, you say they're becoming a Titan. Like, are they just fresh into the space or, you know, their competitors are waning a little bit? What's the dynamic there?
3: It's, it's more, more fragmented market. They've been there a long time, but, but delivering. Um, conduit in the US. Obviously, it's a big thing and everywhere. And it's about being local. So we like them because, you know, they're never going to be more than 500 miles production to site anywhere in the US, which is really important. They always deliver on time. And we just see growth getting better and better. Um, the stock was trading on three times earnings at 20 bucks in November. It's now on 60 bucks. Um, they've delivered knockout result, another knockout result, and guidance is going up, and the market's still not looking at it. Three analysts cover the stock. There's three. Wow. wow. They're, Soon they're, to be many more. <laughs> their, their numbers, their numbers are wrong. Um, they've been wrong for the last two years. They right. keep undercutting it. So you know, it's just I find I think it's interesting to make sure that people you don't get focused on what what you think the the next thing, whether it's robotic process automation or anything is, or, or AI. That's great, and you should make money out of that, but at the same time don't don't forget what makes the world go round. Yeah, yeah, yeah electrical yeah.
2: conduit. Yeah. <laughs> I
3: guess I guess the question is, um, if, data centers, right? That's the bit that's missing. Like, data centers have driven this thing's growth yeah, hugely. Yeah. Yeah. And the market's looking at it like it's a non-resi construction play. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that's just not m- missing the nuance oh, completely. Yeah.
2: I feel like uh, people would look at a company like this and think that it's making a commodity product. And yeah. so like it won't have a lot of pricing power. It needs to make sure it's services first class and it needs to make sure it's cutting costs. But it's always going to be in a really competitive market because it's a commodity. Is that, is that right? Or like how did, you, how did you look at the company and see something that other people weren't seeing?
3: Yeah, it's more of a commodity than lots of things. Um, but lots of things are a commodity like, um, for like robotic process automation is an interesting area of the future where you're going to get computers to basically work out what all the humans were doing work out what it was with an AI, work out how to do it better, and it's just software. Mm. It's servers. Mm. Now that is a commodity at one point. Right now they're charging people for it, but given that it's a server, it's just servers. So mm. once that software's built, how do you premium price? And so, the key question is how do you price something and with software, we know how you price something. You do software as a service, there's add-ons. Even the games industry has worked out nest eggs and, and other mm. ways and downloadable content and other ways to, to make money. So, it's about premium pricing always and they've got an ability to price their product at a premium because they deliver it and they manufacture it well. Yeah. And they also have other things. They brought out a new um, something Glide, I can't remember the trademark, that enables you to pull one cable through another cable easier. So, the, the, you know... Seen they, people try to do that. It's tough. <laughs> So they are innovating. But I think the key, when you say, how does an investor look, what, I want to look premium pricing. What is it about your pricing strategy? How can you charge decent prices and margins compared to your competitors? Fair? They've got to be fair. Because you never want to invest in a company that's not charging a fair price because you're going to lose that money soon. Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's, it's the, the way they work out their premium pricing strategies. And that's something people should always be aware of. Like, mm-hmm. when, whenever you saw those businesses like realestate.com in Australia, right, kept on going up and they kept upgrading estimates for ages, way m- much more than people originally thought. And the reason was they just premium priced. Yeah. And there's just constant premium pricing strategies. And that's a really easy premium pricing strategy to sort of look at as a case study for an investor mm-hmm. and work out what premium pricing means. And then if you see it in other businesses and they can actually do it, that's how the market will never realize won't have the imagination to give credit for.
2: Now, I just want to get a list of all the companies that you think can premium price. (laughs) Maybe that's a week pass. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: (laughs) I remember leaving the interview last uh, time Tobias was on the show and we were literally like, all right, where's where's your watch list? Just just dump it. (laughs) Uh, Final stock, device is uh, Generac. 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 New York as well, uh, GNRC is the ticker. What's the deal? What's, what's generic all about?
3: So they used to make generate only generators for resi and non-resi, so you know, industry, hospitals, etc. And then over the last five years, uh, they, they, they made a lot of acquisitions and transformed to solving a, a local need in the US um, to solving that need on, on a local basis, but globally. And, and they've also now gone into smart grids and wall batteries. So they've made a lot of money. They're really good at generators. And you see a lot of things like a really bad grid system, forest fires, hurricanes really drive up demand. For, for for their generators but they went out and bought an Italian business that gave them access to the emerging markets. They bought a business that gave them wall batteries, they bought businesses and smart grid technology both on the hardware side and the software side and they bought an inverter business. or well, they got an inverter business as one of their acquisitions. So now they're everywhere when it comes to making power at the local, whether it's just your house or whether it's a, a small localized grid somewhere where you've got a few houses and a few generation assets and they're all over that. And, um, and that's what they do. So
2: with, with companies like that, where they do something really well and then they go, I guess, on an acquisition spree and acquire a whole lot of new companies or you know, open up a whole lot of new business areas, there's um, some that work really well and some that don't and are value destructive. Um, was there anything in uh, Generac's latest earnings report that indicated whether the, uh, the acquisitions were value creative or value destructive?
3: Very much so. I mean, that was one of the key things we're looking at. And they were all um, accretive. It, generally, if you find businesses go out and buy another business, it's like, what for? Mm. Mm. And I think that's the key question. And in this case, they've made small acquisitions, small in terms of size of company and the amount they paid for it, and they bought tech. They bought leading technology. And so why, what for? Well, I'm gonna plug that technology into my manufacturing and my distribution networks. That makes a lot of sense. Do you go out and do like full due diligence on the companies that they're acquiring just as much as you would on
1: generic as an initial investment to understand yourself if it's a good-
2: You'll eventually get the name of the company. Yeah, I know, whatever. (laughs)
1: Just just as, you know, understand yourself. (laughs) Whatever. Yeah,
3: yeah. Um, Yeah. Uh, as much as we can. I mean, uh, you, you can never certify that you haven't that something's not going to go wrong, clearly. Yeah. But you, yeah, you do as much as we can. And generally, the good companies will be open and honest and say, look, here's the box. Yeah. Here's what we bought. Yeah. And they'll tell you very clearly, this is how it fits into our acquisition sh- schedule. That's another thing. If a company comes out with an acquisition that is not well flagged, not in terms of who they've actually bought, but in terms of how much money, why and yeah, what for, and how they're going to fit in. If it's not, if it's unexpected, huge alarm bells. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Like when the Indian IT company went out and bought a construction firm, and then two weeks later the chairman admitted the whole thing was a complete fraud, and Shit. they bought the construction firm for access to cash. Like, when someone makes a weird acquisition, yeah. you've got to be like, hang yeah. on.
2: Yeah. 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 So it feels like uh, the, the structural, there's a lot of structural tailwinds in that space, both... Um, in the you know move to home batteries and all of that stuff, and then also uh, you know we, we lived through the bushfires in Australia and California had the same thing, and the demand for generators uh, went up because of you know power outages and stuff like that. So it feels like there's a lot of structural tailwinds for this company. Um, is the market pricing that in um, at it the moment?
3: T- it tries to. I don't think it is. Um, you know, the share price has gone up a lot over the last two years. Um, we go back. Company reported uh, last week, early last week. We go back the week before that. Market was was expecting, okay, pretty sure of this, it's off the top of my head, high teens growth, revenue growth for the next year and possibly the next few years. They came out and said we're going to do 25 to 30 percent. So roll forward a week and there's the unrecognized growth being mm. delivered to you in a result. Mm. And, and stock's up 15% last week. Do I think it should be up more? Yeah. Mm. When you look at it, it's accelerating. Why is it accelerating? Well, because it, the segment mix is making it accelerate. They're, yeah. selling less genera- they're selling generators and loads of them, but they're also selling more of this other stuff. Mm. And the market can see in the future, you've got a company that's gone from a, in, a niche leader in generators who some weird fund managers might say, it is an emerging global titan and I'm buying loads, <laughs> and you roll forward and it's like, well, this thing's 25, 24 billion market cap doing $3.5 billion of sales. It's not yet a titan, but it'll get there, mm. I think.
2: I feel like if we were going to label this episode, it would be emerging global titans. Yes. Yes. That's what
3: what (laughs) we're all about. In
2: (laughs) in a very diverse range of industries, uh, Mm. digital advertising, uh, construction equipment, and then uh, electrical generation.
1: So that was Tobias Bucks from Ausbil. Uh Before we jump into Nick Cregan, a reminder that we do have a live show coming up with a uh, partnership with Stake. Uh, it is Stake Equity Mates. All Access is the series that we're going to be doing uh, the first one is in Sydney on the 29th of April. It is going to be live streamed. We have sold out before. Uh, sold
2: out. It sold out tickets in less than two hours. Yes, Pretty before, before we could that.
1: even finish our cup of coffee, it sold out. But the good news is that it will be live streamed, so you can get free access online if you head to uh, our socials and uh, there's links in there to follow, um, and you can join us as we deep dive into the beverages and alcohol industry. There will be prizes to be won for those watching at home. Boost pack merch, a whole bunch of stuff. We're going to be sitting down with five experts uh, from within the industry, as well as some fund managers who are investing in beverages and alcohol. So uh, we hope you can join it. It is free if you want to join online. And now before we jump into our next Watchlist Wednesday expert, a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is proudly supported by Vanguard Super.
2: Vanguard Super's lifecycle investment option is brilliantly designed for ease, automatically adjusting your investment mix as you get older.
1: Okay, so Ren, what does that actually mean?
2: It means that you can rest easy knowing your super is in steady hands. Vanguard Super leveraged 45 years of global investment expertise to automatically de-risk your portfolio leading up to and during retirement intelligently designed to focus on growth investments in your younger years and gradually introduce more defensive investments as you age, decreasing your investment risk as you near retirement all without you having to lift a finger.
1: Nice. So head to vanguard.com.au slash super to explore Vanguard Super.
2: Vanguard Super Proprietary Limited is the trustee of Vanguard Super. Read the relevant PDS and TMD available at vanguard.com.au slash super and consider if a product is right for you before making any financial decisions. So now we've got Nick Cregan, Portfolio Manager at Fairlight Asset Management. Uh, on Equity Mates on Ausbiz Watchlist Wednesday, talking about three stocks on his watchlist.
1: We are uh, joined in the studio by uh, one of our most popular and also favorite guests of uh, 2020. And that is uh, Nick Cregan uh, from Fairlight Asset Management. Nick, how are you going?
4: Very well. And that was a very generous introduction. Thank <laughs> you yeah. very much. Right. I'm, I'm, telling you. <laughs> I'm telling uh, truth. I'm telling truth.
1: say <laughs> that to all the pretty ladies when they come
0: on.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he knows me well. <laughs> uh, Nick, we are here today, as uh, Alex said, uh, Watchlist Wednesday, three stocks. So look, we may as well get stuck in to it. Great. Um, the first stock that you've sent on your watch list uh, is Hexel, ticker is HXL and they're uh, listed on the New York Stock Exchange. What's going on here?
4: Well, I thought sort of the thematic, and I think a lot of people have probably been talking about this theme of opening up and, and you know, what sits behind that. And there's a lot of stocks that are trading at all-time highs. So if you look at uh, the, the JETS ETF, for instance, within sort of 5 or 10% of its all-time high. So Hexel sort of participates in that in that space, but we think there's a little bit more value. So Hexel is one of the only manufacturers of uh, aerospace-grade carbon fiber in the world. It operates in a really cozy duopoly between itself and a Japanese company called Toray. Okay. Uh, and there's massive barriers to entry here. So you need to be sort of certified by all the sort of aerospace uh, certification programs. If you wanna make a change to one of the programs, it's sort of a 10 year program to, to, to make those changes. So once you sort of in into an aircraft, it's very, very difficult to, to change. COVID kind of hits and you know those sort of things uh, throw a bit of a spanner in the works Uh, but prior to COVID, Hexcel had been nicely profitable even through the 2008 2009 uh, GFC and during this period obviously 100% sort of closure of their major customers which is Airbus and Boeing uh, sort of sent that business into a kind of a tailspin if you like (laughs) but what we really like about it is its got massive structural uh, uh, tailwinds behind it so we think about sort of going back sort of a decade ago, carbon fiber was only sort of 5 to 10% of the overall uh, materials that went into a plane. If we fast forward now to sort of A350s, those those, uh, carbon fiber uh, components are now 50% of those planes. So you don't actually need sort of new planes to be developed as long as the existing fleet gets upgraded over time. And we're very confident that is going to happen as jet fuel prices increase. Um, The the, the major way of reducing your weight is by using carbon fiber, which is some sort of uh, five times lighter and 30%. Uh, um, more durable than um, aluminium. So we just think that that tailwind's going to compound out over time. I
2: like the amount of puns you've included in that (laughs) answer. Tailwind (laughs) twice, (laughs) (laughs) tailspin. I didn't even notice, but there you go. (laughs) So it feels like the aerospace industry loves a duopoly. Obviously Mm. Airbus and Boeing are the big duopoly, but there's another duopoly here. Um, Why Hexel over its Japanese rival?
4: That's a good question. Uh, Hexel has got a slightly stronger sort of financial history, uh, and the returns on invested capital, which is a sort of our hallmark of how we look at businesses and how high quality they are, uh, generates that number at, uh, with greater consistency. So that's the major reason. The other sort of question, which you sort of threw in there, is in duopolies. Is um, you know why would you choose this over, say, a um, another aerospace manufacturer into the aftermarkets market, if you like? Um, f- for us. Um, the big piece is that once the um, uh, carbon fiber is used, it can't be respected into another plane. So there's a, at the moment, there's a situation where it's interesting to see how it's gonna play out, but there's a, essentially a huge car park of planes out there that you can rip parts out of and use into existing aircraft. You can't do that with carbon fiber. So once it's used, it's used. So every aircraft that now rolls off a conveyor belt um, is now going to be using sort of higher percentage of those carbon fiber pieces.
1: Interesting. And so I guess if you're thinking about risks for a company like this, what, what are some of the risks that you're con- considering here? And uh, I guess if your thesis were to change, what would you be looking out for?
4: Yeah, so it's actually one that uh, that we've kept at a low weight until recently, and we've been increasing it as that uh, that margin of safety has been blowing out as the share price has moved away from what we think is intrinsic value. And the reason for that is it's probably riskier than many of the businesses in our portfolio. I think when we, we um, raced through our strategy with you guys you, you should, would have got the sense of recurring revenues, mm-hmm. fully ingrained in your customer workflows, very hard to get rid of you once you're sort of in there and, and a very small percentage of your overall costs of, of, of a service or a manufacturing uh, facility or, or um, uh, import, if you like. For Excel, it's a, and then nice sort of um, diversification of the customer base. For Hexel, it's quite different. So mm-hmm. off the bat, you're sort of thinking, well, you've only got two major clients here, Boeing and, and Airbus. Airbus is the sort of vast majority of that. The vast majority of your revenues are coming from just one industry, which is aerospace. So there's some huge risks there already. The other element, which is we don't usually get involved in what we'd call heavier industrial businesses. So those businesses that can't generate a, a good return on their on their capital through a cycle. Hexcel proven to be able to do that in pretty much all environments until we hit COVID. Uh, but we are also mindful that it does have quite a heavy capex. Or, or capital expenditure program. So it needs to put assets in the ground to mm-hmm. generate those those revenues, which inherently makes it a little bit more cyclical. So we're, we're, we are focused on obviously the key client risk. Uh, we're, we're, in, in, we're also very, very focused on the potential for this business to be a little bit more cyclical than those companies that we typically hold. Mm.
2: We could uh, do a lot more questions on that, but unfortunately we don't have the time. So we'll move on to the second company that you've uh, given us that's on your watch list. Uh, Copart, uh, CPRT is the ticker, trades on the NASDAQ.
4: Um, To start with, can you tell us uh, what this company does? Sure. So, as you know, we take a high quality approach to investing. Uh, and as I start to describe it, you're gonna really question whether, you know, this is a high quality <laughs> business. <laughs> um, so high returns on capital through, through an investment cycle is what we're looking for. But um, Copart is the largest uh, provider in the United States of essentially what is uh, a junkyard service. So it's the opposite of quality, right? Junk. <laughs> but our definition of quality is the actual returns you generate from the assets you put on the ground. And there uh, Copart is absolutely amazing. So what they do is they provide a service for the insurance industry and they connect them to a large army of dismantlers and used car dealerships. So every time a car is either involved in an accident or there's a major hailstorm event or, or some sort of event, they need to, the insurance industry needs to get rid of hundreds of thousands of vehicles very, very rapidly. And so what, we've, uh, what the industry is sort of formed into is, once again, you get the theme here, a duopoly between themselves and IAA, and they've got about sort of 45% market share. Each uh, and there's this natural sort of barrier, ent- barriers to entry that forms. One's physical and the other's digital. On the physical side, uh, you literally have thousands of um, sort of ind- independent lots around um, uh, major metropolitan cities. It's very hard to get those leaseholds or landholdings again because you essentially you're applying to the council for what would be a junkyard mm-hmm. near. Residential housing, so so that's kind of in place. There's no real way for people to break into that industry, and the second fl- uh, piece is that natural digital, and it's a it's a bit of a sort of. Um a cliche these days talking about flywheels but here is one and it's essentially that Amazon or eBay or whatever flywheel where sort of more sellers begets more buyers and more buyers begets more sellers so you rolled up all the insurance industry now that's attracting more buyers that becomes more valuable to the insurance industry and so that flywheel continues to roll on so much so that they've now managed to expand into international markets outside of the US and we think there's a long runway for that business to grow in Europe.
1: Fascinating this is why we love talking to you because it's com- coming up with companies that would just never imagine
4: trying to find. What is the process that you kind of go through to find something like that? Uh, we, we run sort of screens across the, the market using Bloomberg and FactSet like everyone else does. And that sort of drills us down to about 250 companies that are of interest to us. And we, we run sort of some financial metrics as long as as well as developed markets. We're only invested in, in four sectors yeah. that makes things a little bit more, more manageable. But really, the, the special source is a lot of the time just getting out on the road in normal times yeah, and, and seeing and seeing businesses and asking them about their competitors and their suppliers. And you, you, you can draw these sort of maps end-to-end about how industries work. And if you can plug those holes over time, it's usually the, 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 the magic's in the detail. And so you can sort of find these interesting little businesses that dominate niches. Obviously, uh, sometimes, you know, acting in oligopolies or rational duopolies. And they, they sort of fly under the ra- radar mm. of most investors. Uh, mm. But it's really just putting the, the hours in um, you know, we're, we're pretty boring guys. We're just like <laughs> reading 10Ks.
2: <laughs> so you mentioned um, international expansion there and um, you spoke about the moat it has in the States. Yep. Right? Uh, and, you know, it's got, it's rolled up all the insurance companies. It's rolled up all the junkyards. Uh, as it tries to expand internationally, is it going to face that entrenched moat for, with local players in other markets? You know, like has the Australian market already got companies with that moat? have European countries already got companies with that moat? Are they going to be able to be successful in expanding? Do you want a job, Brendan? Because
4: you're asking for the right choice. So uh, as they expand into expanded Germany, for instance, it's um, less about taking on the incumbents, but actually changing the model. Um, and so the model in Germany, for instance, with it is issues the country they're currently taking on, it's been a very antiquated, but very different system. And so they've had to make some investments. And I'll, I'll tell you the reasons why. So in the States, it's very, it's very, um, it's, it's very st- straight cut. So the insurance companies, Company re, re, uh, uh, maintains title of the vehicle until it's sold on to the um, to the end dismantler or. Um, or use car dealer or whoever it might be. But through that process, the person that was involved in that accident is no longer involved in managing that process. So they're taken out of that process and it's highly efficient. So it's corporate to corporate mm. sort of dealing in that transaction. In Germany, it's a very sort of antiquated system where the accident happens and then it's up to the consumer to figure out how to dispose of that vehicle, which is so backwards for a country that's amazing in, in sort of automatic systems, etc. So Coparts had to go in and actually make investments and they've said, okay, we're gonna have to take title of these vehicles and then we'll change the model over time. So the insurance company and the end market guy can transact Mm one-to-one. And so they've been developing this system and they've been growing exponentially as a result, but they've had to put some money in to sort of grow that model over time. So they're not taking on incumbent, they just had to change the way the market works. Wow. Fascinating. So uh, moving to the last uh, stock, Nick, and that is Temenos.
1: Uh, Hopefully I've pronounced that correctly. Uh, The ticker is SWX listed on the TMN,
2: <laughs> couldn't tell you where that is. Has he got that the wrong way around?
4: Could be. I yeah, I was going to say that doesn't really match that, but anyway. Th- that's TMN right. I think, it's, I, think it's listed, I think it's listed in Switzerland, but they're headquartered in, in the UK. It doesn't matter, they're, they're, they basically dominate the European market for uh, for banking software. So if you're a bank, um, still sort of 80% of the software, for, especially for the majors, they'll develop their own core banking software. And usually the other software software that sits adjacent to that, which helps their their employees sort of onboard clients and and do digital marketing, um, internet banking, that sort of stuff sits in an adjacency. But around 80% of that software is still developed internally, Um, but Temenos has spent the last sort of 10 to 20 years, uh, longer than that, um, developing a client base, which that referral base is is becoming more and more powerful over time. So banks are becoming more comfortable outsourcing what they used to see as their core competency. as a result, um, that the banking industry is growing at about, the, the software banking industry is growing about 8% per annum, but Temenos is growing share within that, which is really important. Uh, the big element for, for Temenos uh, more recently is they're trying to break from Europe into the United States, which is a much bigger market. They've sort of given up on the core banking side there, but there's a lot to provide around that sort of second uh, element that I described, so the on uh, digital banking internet banking, sort of onboarding of clients, et cetera. And they're making some real um, um, toeholds there. The big element that they've seen recently is sort of coming out of this COVID period is that they need their um, sort of core guys, their consultants, etc., to be on the ground with their clients to help with these big sort of uh, implementations. And, and so revenues were down some sort of 11% in the last quarter, but they still generated 12% earnings growth, which just talks to some pretty strong um, um, management within that business mm. to sort of manage that cost base. So they're coming out of this period, um, accelerating their market share gains because they spend twice as much on R&D as their next largest competitor. And their win rate is twice as strong in their license software than it is um, uh, their next largest competitor as well. The whole model is now shifting and you guys might have had people on talking about how sort of software is shifting from license to software as a service now mm. uh, and then what that means for sort of recurring revenues, et etc. The big fear for Temenos was that as they were making that transition, their margins were going to take a real hit. And so the market was positioned for this big downgrade. uh, And and the nice thing that sort of came, we we were positioned ahead of that because we are like, we don't really care if next quarters or next year's earnings are down. The NPV of that project as you transition from license to software as a service is some 40 to 50% higher over the life of that contract. So we were very happy to take a long-term view. As it's transpired, um, they've come out in their their most recent uh, investor update or their investor day. And they've said, look, our margins are going to be just fine Um, 120 basis points adjusted and 40 basis points higher if you just use the gap earning so to us that's fine
2: Wow, mm. we uh, love software as a service companies. We love software as, as a service companies with a network effect, and obviously the uh, the U.S. market does as well. Looking at some of the multiples that some of those companies are trading at, is there a network effect here? Like, is uh, does it improve interoperability between banks if they're all using the same software? And is it one of those things that if Temenos can start winning more and more customers, that'll I guess to talk about flywheels again, it'll be this you know, self-reinforcing cycle where more and more banks want to use the same software platform?
4: You're on fire, Ren,
2: because
4: in their investor update in the last uh, the one that they provided, one of their arguments again, so if you think about Temenos, they're almost like the SAP of banking. So they are the guys that sort of put themselves out there as the one-stop shop. Uh, we've got all these different solutions that sit under our core banking infrastructure. But if you're an up-and-coming service provider or a software provider, you can plug in via mm-hmm. API but they also make the debate that um, if they're competing with those companies rather than partnering with them, how do they compete? And and their big argument is all of these banks provide us their data voluntarily, and we're able to use that as benchmarking data to provide these banks um, where they're at best practice and where they're not, and that's how they can improve their, their services. So that, um, that, but that is uh, not so much a network effect, but it's an interesting way of sort of um, using that network, if you like, to provide a service to mm-hmm. those guys that allows them to get through. The second thing is absolutely, so there is efficiency gains, um, especially in places like the States where you've got ACH network um, payment systems, which increasingly the banks are moving away from because they're so antiquated. So um, usually you have to batch the payments on a, at the end-of-day basis rather than do real-time banking on a sort of second-by-second second basis. Temenos can help with that. Um, by providing sort of direct pipes between the two banks. So th- there is that element, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it the true kind of network effect that you get from a consumer facing yeah, business, okay. for instance. Yeah.
2: yeah.
1: Well, Nick, unfortunately, that is all we have time for today. We can chat about this all day long, and we're certainly going to have to get you back on for another watch list Wednesday. So um, just a reminder we had Hexel ticker HXL, Copart ticker CPRT, and Temenos ticker TEMN. Well, there you go, Ren. That was uh, two experts that we've had on AusBiz for Watchlist Wednesday. If you did enjoy that content, as Ren said at the start of the show, every Wednesday you can join us uh, on AusBiz or it's available on demand on YouTube as well as the channel. So
2: every Wednesday you can join us for Watchlist Wednesday. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday you can join us for other AusBiz episodes. So... um you know, just more, just keep that fire hose of content pumping along. That's right. <laughs> so,
1: we hope you enjoyed it. Um, certainly, a lot to, to gain from both of those experts, and uh, two of which we sort of deeply admire as well. So, yeah. um, big fans. Big fans. Yeah. And uh, always good to listen to experts, Ren, rather than chat stocks. We didn't chat stocks that episode, no, but always no, good no. to hear. And uh, we'll pick it up. next week. Sounds yeah. good.
0: Equity Mates Investing podcast is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only it is not intended as a substitute for professional finance legal or tax advice the hosts of equity mates investing podcast are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances before making any financial decisions you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary consult a licensed financial professional do not take financial advice from a podcast
2: Today's episode is proudly supported by Vanguard Super.
1: Now, as you know, here at Equitymates,
2: we hate fees. And after just over a year in market, Vanguard Super have lowered their fees. Their award-winning lifecycle option now has one of the lowest fees on the market, more than 30% lower than industry average.
1: With a yearly fee of just 0.56%, which bundles administration fees, investment fees, and transaction costs, that's only $280 on a balance of $50,000.
2: Extend your investment success with Vanguard to your superannuation. Head to vanguard.com.au slash super to explore Vanguard Super. Fee
1: comparison based on super rating smart data as at 31 March 2024. Other fees and costs may apply. Vanguard Super Pty Ltd is the trustee of Vanguard Super. Read the relevant PDS and TMD available at vanguard.com.au slash super and consider if a product is right for you before making any financial decisions.
2: ACAS powers the world's best podcasts.